Um, if you would like to open your Bibles with me today for the reading of our scripture, we're going to be reading in Exodus um, chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. You shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will turn, be turned into blood. The fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their streams, and over their pools, and over all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded. And he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after, after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, would you open our eyes? Would you speak to us as your word is preached this morning? God, when we see your judgments that are visited in your word, would we not be deaf with our ears or hard with our hearts? Would you cause our hearts to be soft to your word? Would you help us to see your warnings? Would you help us to flee to our only refuge the refuge that is Christ. God, help us to praise you as we see you in control of all things. We ask that you would give us understanding what your word has to say about you, about your purposes, about your victory, and how that then informs us. And so, would you be gracious and allow this sermon to do far more than it could in any other hands but yours. We pray this for our, our good, and we pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I would invite you to open your Bibles to the passage that you just heard read, Exodus chapter 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one in front of you. I will be in the New American Standard translation. You have one of those in front of you. If you do not have a Bible, it would be our joy to give you one. And so we'd love for you to read this. It's like this is how God has revealed himself to us in and through his word. And so we'd love for you to get to know this God through his word. So we stepped out of our Exodus sermon series last week for, for Easter. We find ourselves back in to the action of Exodus. And this is where the battle begins to rage. Oftentimes, as we think of the book of Exodus, we begin to think of the plagues that the Lord will bring upon Egypt and Pharaoh. And we could almost sense at the end of last sermon on the book of Exodus, we could see that the action was beginning to stir. If we were to go back to Exodus chapter 7, the passage right in front of where we picked up, verses 8 through 13, there's this encounter between uh, Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. And the encounter goes uh, something to where the Lord tells Aaron to throw his staff down, and he throws his staff down, and it becomes a servant. Uh, a serpent, not a servant. <laughs> a serpent. And then Pharaoh called for his magicians and the sorcerers, and they come, each carrying a staff, and they throw their staffs down, and it becomes serpents. They become serpents. And then in verse 12, each one threw down his staff, they turned into serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And we said that this was a sign of what was to come. This was a sign of what was about to play out over the next 10 plagues. This was the Lord calling out Pharaoh, not only calling out Pharaoh, but calling out his authority and saying, I, the Lord, have authority over you. I have, a, I have authority over all things. And so to help set the context for what we'll see over the next several weeks, it's helpful when we refer to plagues, the Bible refers to those as signs and wonders. And so when we think of plagues, maybe not best for us to think of disease, though it could include that, the plagues were afflictions that, were brought, that, that would bring trouble upon those to whom it was directed. And so not so much diseases, but afflictions that were meant to trouble those who were the recipients and, and the plagues were fundamentally judgments of God, whereby he was making abundantly clear that he alone was the God most high and no one could stop. His purposes, his plans, no one could stop his power. And perhaps what we may miss at look, uh, at, and when we look at these plagues and we understand them as God's judgments, what we may miss is that the plagues are also God's mercy. God's mercy we see revealed in and through the plagues. And my hope this morning is that the sermon will help us capture those two realities. The judgment of God as seen in the plagues and the mercy of God as seen in the plagues. And so there are ten plagues that God directs towards Pharaoh and, and 
towards Egypt. And we'll uncover these over the next few chapters. And we're going to preach them in our sermon series in sets of three. And so the first three plagues, and then the second three plagues, and then the third three plagues. There will be nine. Then there's a warning about this tenth plague that is coming. And we'll look at that tenth plague by itself. And really, that approach corresponds with how this, the book of Exodus is structured. Each of these nine plagues are groups of three. There are three groups of three. And Moses is retelling this story in a poetic fashion. And there are similarities about each of the plagues, right? If you were to take plagues one, two, three, and you were to take plagues four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, if you were to look, the very first plague, one, four, and seven, there are similarities in those plagues. If you were to look at two, five, and eight, there's similarities in those plagues. If you were to look at three, six, and nine, there's similarities in those plagues. The, the first plague in each of those sets, it, it, it's accompanied by a confrontation with Pharaoh and then a warning about when this plague is going to happen. We see that in the first three plagues, uh, the first three of each set. And then the second plagues of each set, there's a confrontation with Pharaoh, but there's no warning about when this is going to happen. And then the last plagues in each set, there's no confrontation, there's no warning, the Lord simply acts. And all of those three, each set growing in intensification, growing in a greater clarity around the power of this one who is inflicting these Egyptians. All of this culminating in the most powerful of plagues, the 10th plague. And so this morning, we'll consider God's judgment and his mercy in those first three plagues. And maybe the reminder that we need most this morning is not just let's do a survey of the first three plagues, but let's remember why these plagues were employed in the first place. Why in the world did the Lord use these plagues? I mean, this is what we know. I said earlier in the service, we are praying to a God who can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Well, if that's the God that we're praying to, and that's the God who was here in Exodus, then God could have made his point in one fell swoop. He could have brought one single event in action that would have convinced everyone and would have accomplished his purpose. And yet he, in perfect wisdom, chose ten plagues. Well, if you'll remember two weeks ago, we said that salvation and deliverance, it always comes through judgment. Salvation and deliverance always comes through judgment. And what we see in the book of Exodus is that the salvation of the people of God will come through the judgment of Pharaoh in Egypt. And so the same plague that saved some would also bring justice to others. Each of these plagues were aimed at exposing the false gods and the false hopes of the Egyptians. It's helpful for us to get that. Each plague purposefully inflicted so as to show the bankruptcy that's found in trusting in false gods. 
and the bankruptcy that's found in putting your hope in anything else other than the one true living God. And these plagues have one overarching purpose that that really is captured in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. If there is a summary statement, if there's a bumper sticker that we want to put on on the car of the plagues, then that bumper sticker would be Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. That summary statement is this. For this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all of the earth. The Lord allowed his people to stay enslaved. The Lord allowed Pharaoh to have continued power and authority. The Lord allowed there to be ongoing plagues. Why? In order to show his power and to so proclaim his name through all the earth. Think about what we saw in Exodus chapter 7 verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. In our passage this morning, Exodus chapter 7 verse 17. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. And so this plague, the Lord is saying, you will know who I am by what I'm about to do. We see that in the first plague. We also see that in the second plague. Exodus chapter 8 verse 10. May it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. This is a God who is jealous to make himself known. This is a God who is jealous of the worship of those whom he has created. And he is willing to do whatever necessary in order to convince and to give everyone no excuse for not worshiping him alone. Each of the plagues are intended to make clear that that there is none, there's none like the Lord our God. God is a God who desires to be known, and the invitation for us this morning is that we can know this God. We can know this God the same way that Pharaoh and the Egyptians could have known this God, and that is to turn our back on living for self and to trust in him alone. You can know him in mercy. And the warning of the plagues is that if you choose not to know this God in his mercy, you will inevitably come to know him in his judgment. And so let's unpack God's judgments in these plagues. And I trust along the way we will discover his mercy. And so plague number one, the Nile River turns to blood. The Nile River turns to blood. This is what you heard read this morning. Exodus chapter 7 verses 14 through 25. And the Lord outlines the situation here at the beginning of this plague. These introductory verses here to this first plague. Verses 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 and 18. And this is the, this is the scene. The Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron makes clear that because Pharaoh's heart is stubborn and because he has not let God's people go, verse 14, then Moses and Aaron are to go and to meet him in the morning as he is going out to the Nile 
verse 15. Because he hasn't listened until now, verse 16, there is a judgment that is coming, verses 17 and 18. And so again, I wonder even at the outset, can you see in the midst of judgment that is coming, can you trace mercy? If the Lord would have given Egypt and Pharaoh what they deserved, we wouldn't have anything past, this is my word. And if there's not obedience, the Lord could have done away. And we may even be right to say the Lord should have done away with those that are in opposition to him. And yet in mercy and kindness, the Lord tarries. The Lord is for, forbearing. The Lord is patient to extend opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for the people of Egypt and for Pharaoh to repent, to come to him. And so let's not miss his mercy in the midst of the judgments. And so Moses and Aaron did exactly as God had commanded, and they struck the Nile water with the staff, and the Nile turned to blood. And there's more at play here than just a kind of a gross plague. This plague struck at the heart of the Egyptian way of life and their culture. The Nile River was central to Egypt's understanding of their greatness. But one commentator would say, if you take away the Nile and its benefits, then Egypt dissolves. Phil Riken put it this way, with one single blow, God gave them a water and food shortage, a transportation shutdown, a financial disaster, and a spiritual crisis. And so this first plague goes straight to the heart of the identity of this people. We are great because of this river that provides so much for us. And everyone comes to us. And the Lord said, make sure that your identity isn't found in the blessings that I've given you. And so he strikes at the very core center of who they are as a people. And the last thing that Phil Riken said was not just food, water problem, transportation problem, financial disaster, but he said it was a spiritual crisis. This is what we know of Egypt during this time. Uh, studying this week, Egypt, they, they had some 90 to 115 different false gods that they worshiped regularly. And most notably is the God that they called Happy, H-A-P-I. This was the God that they referenced and saw as the one who was responsible for the Nile River and the life that would come from that. And so as they came each year to see the Nile flood and the, the waters of the Nile overflowed the banks and the deposit-rich silt on both sides of the river would then produce a rich soil in which crops would grow and so happy was seen as the God that was associated with this water, the God that was associated with life, the God who cared to maintain order in this world by seeing this flood that happened, life that sprang up, and then great benefit to this people. And this plague was an attack on this false God. 
And this plague intended to show the Egyptians that there is but one God who's worthy of their worship. There is but one God who is over all of creation. And it wasn't happy. That which they had hoped for in, in their security and their prosperity would ultimately be the cause of their destruction. This plague was the bell toll that judgment had come to this people. And with judgment would come death. And that's what we see. Death in the wildlife as fish began to die. Death in the way of life for this people. Verse 25 tells us that this plague lasted for seven days. And we also read that during these seven days, as Pharaoh watches all of this unfold, and then the text says that he goes to his house, house just unconcerned about these things. And the people are left digging for water outside of the Nile, looking for water that wasn't contaminated with blood. Verse 19 shows that perhaps even water that was taken from the Nile and turned uh, and sitting in containers ended up turning into blood. And so it wasn't that there was this plague and then, oh, but if you drew water just 30 minutes before and it's in your house and in this stone earthen well, you were good. The Egyptians are in need of water for their main supply. And that main supply has turned into a fish-killing, stink-smelling, blood-infested, blood-permeated, blood-flowing river. But Pharaoh has an act up his sleeve. And then we see these magicians reappear. And the text tells us that the magicians are able to replicate this effect, to replicate this miracle. And it's worth noting that the powers that the magicians have, again, I said this two weeks ago, I understand those to be satanic powers. And these powers only are strong enough to imitate. Satan is an imitator. Satan tries to take what God does and says, oh, I can do that and I can do it better than that. And just notice the sad irony. The magicians, in seeking to imitate the plague, have, have not succeeded in solving the problem. They're only further perpetuating the problem. Somehow there was some water that was not yet affected. And so in my mind, I see this conversation happening where Moses and Aaron, the staff touches the water, water turns to blood. And it's like, they're, where are we getting water? And the magicians show up and they say, oh, we have water. And hey, you can do that, but watch what we can do. And they turn the little bit of water that they have left into blood. Moses and Aaron, good job. Now what are you going to drink? And as silly as that conversation that didn't happen, I would assume, may be, the picture is sobering. In these desperate times and in, with dashed hopes, what's revealed is the false and powerless gods that we can easily trust in. 
What the Egyptians learned is that their idols will always let them down. Their idols will always fail. And this morning, it's helpful for you and I to recognize and realize the same thing. Whatever it is that you're putting your hope ultimately in, if it is not God, it will let you down. It will fail you. In his excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, this is what Tim Keller says. What is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. It's anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that if you lost it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And for the Egyptians, if they lost the Nile, they lost everything. And I think you and I know, we know that if we have made something to be an idol, then whenever that, that thing lets us down, doesn't deliver, is taken away, we can feel like there's, that life is hardly worth living anymore. We can feel like our whole world has been destroyed because this thing has let us down. It could be the house that you want. It could be the kind of car that you wanted to drive. It could be the sports team that you wanted to win. It could be the relationship that you wanted to happen. The kids that you wanted in order to make all of your dreams come true. It could be any number of good things. The Nile was a good thing. It was given by God. And yet they took the good thing and turned it into an ultimate thing. And any time you turn good things into ultimate things, they become idols. And idols will always let you down. Idols make for really bad masters. Always calling you to give more and more and more and never able to satisfy and to deliver what is being promised. I wonder this morning what has taken that place in your life. What is that thing that really your identity has become so in, in, intertwined with that if you were to lose that, you feel like you've lost you. In the midst of a sermon about the plagues, don't miss the mercy of God. Seeking to give you an opportunity to not put your hope in that which can't deliver. Learn from the plagues. There is one who is worthy of your hope because there is only one who makes good on every promise that he has. You need the work of Jesus. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you need the work of Jesus because you will live for things that overpromise and underliver. And you need the work of Jesus because when you do that, you need forgiveness. 
The judgment of God is clear. Pharaoh has disobeyed what God has commanded and judgment came. There will always be judgment for sin against God. Don't miss that throughout the plagues. This is God not bringing judgment on morally neutral people. This is God bringing judgment on those that have dug their heels in and said, we will not go the way of God. Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. And we see that because he doesn't obey the Lord. And at the root of this hard-heartedness, this disobedience, this unbelief, there is a distrust and a dislike for God himself. And this is what hardened and sinful hearts do. They look for any reason to persist in their unbelief. And while the Bible tells us that God has indeed hardened Pharaoh's heart, the Bible also makes clear that Pharaoh is choosing to not believe. That leads us to the second judgment, the second plague. Plague number two, the infestation of frogs. The infestation of frogs. This is what the word of God says in Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, so verse 25, seven days have passed. After seven days, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. And the Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your own ovens or into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come up on you and your people and all your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up, and they covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did the same thing, uh, did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron. And said, entreat the Lord that he may remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, you, the honor is yours to tell me, when shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile? Then he said, tomorrow. So he said, may it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They will be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. The Lord did according to the word of Moses and the frogs died out of the houses and the courts and the fields. And so they piled them in heaps and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. And did not listen to them as the Lord had said. I'm not convinced that humor is to be found in the plagues. But if humor was to be found in the plagues, this would be the place where it is found. These wet amphibious animals would come up out of the Nile and would literally crawl all over people. Literally, you go to cook something. and You open your oven and frogs are jumping out and you mix your mixing bowls and you're mixing food and frogs are getting in and coming out of your mixing bowls. Uh, 
Just imagine rolling over in your bed at night just to encounter. There's not even a word in the Hebrew for frogs. The word is croaker. And just imagine the big croaker, just slimy, unsanitary, gross frogs in your bed. They literally interrupted and intruded in literally every facet of life. Commentator Peter Enns says, God turning the animal kingdom against humanity is a reversal of creation. Men were, have to, men were to have dominion over the animals, but here we see the animals taking over everything. If we were to go back to Exodus chapter 1, there was another Pharaoh, a previous Pharaoh, who would say, oh, we need to enslave the people of God because they are multiplying great. They are increasing greatly. The word there is teeming. Exodus chapter 1 verse 7. Same word is used here. The land was teeming, multiplying greatly with frogs. And here's the thing. The Egyptians would have been accustomed to some increase in frogs after the floodings. And they didn't regard frogs as, as, as gross animals, but rather as symbols of blessing and fruitfulness. Again, so if striking the Nile went after the false god of happy life, this plague seems to be targeting the most famous goddess worshipped by the Egyptians, Heket. The goddess Heket was worshipped as the goddess of fertility. The magicians would reappear, and behold, they are able to imitate yet again frogs coming up out of the waters, only making the, prog, uh, the frog problem all the more intensified. Right? I just, you're thinking about this. Let's show them that they are unrivaled. Magicians, come up, work your magic. And they just add more frogs to a frog problem. And so, again, these magicians who they were looking to, to provide some level of guidance, some level of the ability to do things that seems to be only that which God can do. We're just beginning to realize there's severe limitations to what they can do. And verse 8 gives us insight at, at to what Pharaoh is beginning to realize. Listen again to verse 8. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may remove from me and from my people the frogs, and I will let the people go. And in that moment, we're beginning to see, wait, Pharaoh begins to understand that God is the one to be reckoned with, that Heket can't fix this, that the magicians can't fix this. For this problem, he is beginning to see God as the only solution. What we begin to see is there begins to be more and more knowledge about God that Pharaoh is going to have. And what we also see is that mere knowledge about God is not what is needed in order to be right with God. And so Pharaoh is learning about God, and yet Pharaoh is unwilling to bow his knee to this God that he's learning about. 
And so Pharaoh goes to Moses and vows that if God will remove the frogs, because we have no way of removing them, if God will do this, then I will obey and I will let the people go that they may worship him. There was a question, Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh asked Moses and said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And besides, I will not let the people go. Chapter by chapter, Pharaoh's own question, who is the Lord, is being answered. He's beginning to know who the Lord is. And here he acknowledges his existence and his power to address his need. And Moses turns and gives Pharaoh the opportunity to call the shot on when all of this should come to an end, highlighting that it's God's power that's in control and that's over everything that's unfolding. Okay, you're approaching us. You want God to do what you can't do? Well, how about this? How about you just tell me when it should happen and we will seek the face of God to allow you to call the shot to show you that this isn't some regularly scheduled program. No, this is a God who is living and active, who hears the prayers of his people. And so Moses cries out to God in prayer. And I was helped to hear Lig Duncan, his, his thoughts about Moses crying out to God in prayer here. And he says, look at the situation. You've got Moses, this elderly shepherd from Midian. That's where he's come from unimpressive in the sight of the world, and you have the most important man in the known world, Pharaoh. And Lig Duncan said, it's those who know God who are more instrumental in accomplishing God's will for the future than those who are mighty on the earth. Those who know God are more instrumental in accomplishing God's will for the future than those that are mighty on the earth. And so Christian brothers and sisters, take heart in that. God has purposes that he intends to use that would change the world and how he's going to introduce them and unfold them will be through the prayers of unimpressive, unknown, ordinary people like you and me. You got, man, you've got the most powerful man in the known world. And you've got an elderly shepherd and the Lord takes the prayer of the elderly shepherd, not the will of the most powerful man, and he changes history through this. God hears your prayers, and he will use your prayers in ways that he will not use government policies and presidential decrees. He hears and he answers, and then the frogs began dying out. And what an environmental disaster it was. Not to mention just a putrid odor from heaps of frogs piling up. And what does Pharaoh see? He sees relief. And in seeing relief, he hardens his heart and he refuses to do as the Lord had said. And again, we see God's judgment against sin. Anytime you refuse to, refuse to do, refuse to obey, 
refuse to believe. Anytime you refuse to obey and believe and do what God has said, you are incurring judgment. And some of us read this account and we find ourselves guilty of doing the same things. When life gets difficult and hard, we cry out, God, help me. I know I've not worshipped you. I know I've not done this for a while. But if you will help me, then I will surrender if you come through. And God comes through. And we begin to justify away all of the reasons why we don't have to hold up our end of the bargain. And we run back to other things for our satisfaction and our joy and our worship. And let's just allow plague number two to be a reminder that God will not be mocked. He is not okay with your lip service that is void of heartfelt obedience and worship. You do yourselves no favor by making promises to God that you don't keep. Brings us to the third plague. The swarming gnats. The swarming gnats. We see this in verses 16 through 19 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats through all of the land of Egypt. And so they did. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast, and the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Gnats, some translations may read mosquitoes. If we're going, what's the worst? I'm definitely understanding this to be mosquitoes. Small, barely visible insects whose bite can provide, uh, who brings about uh, irritation, both when they fly into your eyes and into your ears and into your nose. And they are as plentiful. This is the first time that the plague is not surrounding the waters. It's now surrounding the land, touches the dust, and the gnats are as plentiful as the dust. And this plague is different. It, it's different from the, the first two because there's no introduction to Pharaoh about it. It just happens. But it's also different in that the magicians can't duplicate this. The magicians are at an end. The Lord has used these plagues to show that what you've been hoping in and what you've been trusting in really has limits. Why keep going to a limited power when you could go to an unlimited one? And the, the magicians confess, this work is the finger of God. There's no magic that we can do that can rival his power. That's the testimony. They acknowledge that the plague is supernatural. They acknowledge that this is beyond human control. We can't match this. And there are many people who will try to supernatural away everything that has happened thus far and everything that will happen over the next 10 plagues. Really nine. I mean, just in reading and just reading some of the, 
naturalistic explanations. People are just saying, no, 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 this isn't a supernatural phenomenon. This is just what happens when the blue Nile, which flows into the Nile River, stirs up reddish soil. Perhaps when it was flooded, there were organisms which were doing some type of weird stuff, almost like red tide that we would know. It begins to start glowing. It looks reddish. And then what happens? Well, once once something gets in the water that has sort of naturally happened or flown, uh, flowed into the Nile, then what, what do you have? Well, you have fish that begin to die. And what happened when all the fish begin to die? You have frogs that want to get out of the Nile because it's contaminated. So they get out and they begin to swarm. Well, what happens when you have a bunch of frogs heaped in piles? Oh, you have insects, you have gnats and you have flies and, and, and they begin to happen. And what happens? Well, that then leads to to disease and, and boils and leprosy. And then in the winter, storms come with heavy rain and hail. And then in the spring, the locusts arrive. And then a dust storm kicks everything up and it becomes dark in the land. And all of this is just a matter of natural phenomenon. It's seasons. It's the course of nature. I just want to step back and say, as much faith as it takes you to believe that all of those things can happen sequentially, unprecedented at one moment in history when this was happening, as much faith is required to believe that than to trust this. And who more than anyone else would have loved to have taken refuge in those types of theories than these magicians? Uh, These magicians potentially were confessing, hey, we're going to be jobless. We can't do anything like this. They would have loved to have come up under the theory of natural phenomenon. But they attribute these signs and wonders to God himself. And what we see God doing is what he always does. He's using these tiny insects to prove the limit of Pharaoh, this great man's power. He's using the little. He's using the weak to shame the strong. He's using the foolish to stump the wise. He's choosing to expose and humiliate Egypt by going so small for them And he's working in these small insects, wonders that are too grand for them to imitate. It's beautiful what the Lord is doing. And the magicians, while their response is different, Pharaoh's response remains the same. Their alarm doesn't phase Pharaoh. It only prompts him to harden his heart even further. Pharaoh is the poster child for what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 9, who is rejecting clear revelation. Pharaoh's problem is not that he doesn't have enough evidence. It's not that he doesn't have enough information. It's not that he doesn't have enough knowledge. Pharaoh's problem is that he has a corrupt heart. And that's what the Bible shows from cover to cover that God is going to bring judgment to the corrupt, to the guilty, to the sinful. 
And we read this account and we oftentimes try to locate ourselves in this story. And if we're not careful, we can try to locate ourselves in the story and sort of say, yeah, we understand God's perspective. Or yeah, we understand the perspective of Moses and Aaron having to stand up against someone who doesn't believe. But truth be told, we need to locate ourselves in Pharaoh. The Bible describes humans as those who are very similar to Pharaoh. You see, for Pharaoh, it wasn't offensive that Israel had a God. It was offensive that God insisted on having authority over him. And that's what he struggled with. Do I lose my self-sovereignty and submit to another? And that, is, that fundamentally is the same problem that you have and that I have. Do I submit doing life how I want to do it? And do I trust in doing it the way in which God has called me to do it? There's one thing that we can't tolerate. It's some deity impending on our freedoms and our desires. And so we live in a day in which when we get to call the shots, that's what rules the day. And Pharaoh struggled with this because Pharaoh thought that he was a god. People who are consumed by their idols like Pharaoh, they ruin their lives despite the obvious truth that's in front of them. And so a person can be consumed with a career, with making money, with achievement, with saving face, with social standing, with the perfect family, with a romantic relationship, with beauty, with intelligence, with sex, with power, with control or happiness. But each one of those counterfeit gods drives us into the ground as we try to appease them. False gods are destructive, and while that may sound hopeless, it's not. Because the mercy in the plagues is that God is showing you who has the glorious power. Who's the God who hears? Who's the God who acts? Who's the God that nothing can stand against? Pharaoh isn't guilty of anything that you and I haven't done at a heart level. You say, oh, I'm not as bad as Pharaoh. I've never enslaved anyone, but you've used them. I'm not as bad as Pharaoh. I've never, I've never openly hated and was hostile and said, I'm going to ignore God. Nope. But you've looked to other things to do what only God can do. You've been slow to submit your will to him. I mean, Romans 3 makes this clear. Exodus is just unfolding what Paul talks about in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified is a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Verse 26 for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. Why? So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. There is only one who can save us. And the only one who can save us is the one who has promised to bring judgment against anyone who doesn't trust him. The God we have sinned against is the God who provides the mercy that we need. And if we trust in this God, if we believe in this God, 
then we will be spared from judgment. If we disobey him and we follow our own path, then one day our, counterfeits, our counterfeit gods will turn on us and we will be left excuseless before the Lord on that final day. The beauty of the message of the Bible is that your creator has not just remained a creator, but he has become our redeemer. God delivered his people through the blood of his son on the cross. And his death is that which has achieved reconciliation. We can be made right with God. We can have forgiveness. He rescues his people from the slavery to their false gods. He rises to victory and he invites all who are in him to newness of life. That's the good news. That's the mercy that we see in the plagues. One of the mercies that we see in the plague accounts was not just that God was being for, forbearing and patient with the Egyptians, but this has been preserved and he has been forbearing and patient with you. In order for someone to be rescued from their false gods and from the penalty of sin, they must come to the conclusion that God is right. I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. And so bow your knee and trust. Trust him. That's the invitation this morning. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Maybe you're new to the Bible and you're saying all of this talk of the supernatural sounds like it belongs in a fantasy series. But we would agree that what we're seeing here in the Exodus is not normative in how the world works. We don't think of these things as happening all the time. I've never seen anything like this. But the crazy supernatural nature of things, that's precisely the point. They're meant to sound otherworldly. They're meant to point us to a God who is over all of the order and predictability that he has created. And so if you're tempted to just dismiss it, I would plead with you, don't dismiss the supernatural when precisely the supernatural is what God was intending to convey. Maybe it's even what he's using to grab your attention, to get your eyes off of the things of this world. And to think about that which is most powerful overall. And so in the midst of judgment, we trace mercy all over these plagues. Mercy is in the invitation to this God who judges the wicked, but who will deliver any and all who repent and believe. God's warnings are gracious expressions of his mercy. And if you are not a Christian, we would call you fall and trust in that mercy. You can avoid his right judgment by running to his abundant mercy.